0: Hi, everybody. It's Bean, and welcome to an all-new episode of Great Moments in Weed History. We have an adrenaline-pumping wild ride of an episode for you this week. Abdullah is still on, say it with me, hiatus, but I had a chance to ride shotgun for the literal thrill ride that is the life story of Randy Lanier. Now, I recently read Randy's new book, Survival of the Fastest, Weed, Speed, and the 1980s Drug Scandal that Shocked the Sports World, and I knew from pretty much the first page that we absolutely had to have him on this podcast, because back in the day, Randy was simultaneously one of the top race car drivers in the world and one of the most prolific cannabis smugglers on earth. We're talking about 165,000 pounds of Primo Bud coming in on massive tugboats, including the legendary Punta Roja strain that was grown in Colombia and was widely considered pretty much the best weed you could possibly get back in the 1980s. Randy's racing career started in 1978, And his weed-selling career began even earlier than that. He competed at Le Mans, which is the world's most prestigious endurance race. He won the 1984 IMSA Camel GT title, and he drove in the literal Indy 500. All of this was funded by his weed-smuggling operations. So, weed and speed. This is all, of course, taking place in the pre-cartel golden age of small-time independent cannabis smugglers. This is an era back when the idea of homegrown cannabis was pretty synonymous with ditchweed. So if you wanted good cannabis, and especially if you wanted great cannabis, it had to be smuggled in by people like Randy Lanier. And this is not the first time that we've profiled a 1970s cannabis smuggler on Great Moments in Weed History. Longtime listeners will remember our episodes about Tom forsad the founder of High Times Magazine, who also got his funding for his dream by bringing in the big loads of weed, in that case via airplane, and... A very special episode with a longtime friend of mine, Robert Black Tuna Platshorn, who was one of the biggest smugglers of the 1970s as well, ended up being somebody who served nearly 30 years in prison, came out and dedicated his life to educating his fellow senior citizens about cannabis. He's living a great life down in Florida, right now, has his own strain called Black Tuna. You can find it in dispensaries. You can listen to both those episodes in our Great Moments in Weed History archives. As for Randy, I've got a need for both Weed and Speed Lanier. He unfortunately also did a lot of time, but he came out on the other end with an incredible story to tell and a deep desire to help his fellow prisoners in the war on cannabis. We're gonna hear all about it. Nobody tells this story better than Randy. I loved reading his book, but it was much, much better to sit down, blaze one with him, and hear it all from the man himself. Before we get into the episode, as always, I want to give a huge, Thank you to our supporters on Patreon. These are the kind-hearted folks who love this podcast so much that they want to throw in on it. And you can join our Great Moments in Weed History family by going to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. You could put five on it. You could put as little as $1 on it. That will get you access to the video version of the podcast. You'll see me opening this jar of weed and smelling it. You could put a little more on it and get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly, sent right to your door. Those of you who came to the podcast feed last week on Weedness Day and didn't find a new episode, that's because every other week... We are doing exclusive episodes for our patrons only. So, if you want to hear every single episode of Great Moments in Weed History, support our effort to preserve cannabis history and celebrate the heroes of our culture, please help us out at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. It really keeps the grow lights on and the grow room that is this podcast. Also, Please subscribe to the podcast and you will never miss an episode that we put out in this format. And of course, tell your friends who love weed and love history to come get high on history with us by sharing one of your favorite episodes of the show with them. You could text it to them, you could email them, or you could tell them about this podcast at your next smoke sesh. Also, one more quick reminder to please register to vote and please make a plan to vote in this upcoming election. Cannabis is always on the ballot. Support the candidates who support our rights, and we will have a much weedier world moving forward. Also, if you live in Washington State or you have a friend in Washington State, our great moments in weed history, pre-rolls, I'm holding up the pack now. For our Patreon subscribers to see are available in Washington State. There's 10 different ones to choose from. And finally, before we get into this episode and start burning rubber and burning weed, we've got one last item on the agenda. What I've got for this week is a lovely... Eighth, which was gifted to me by some true friends of the podcast from up in Mendocino County, California. I'm talking about the incredible team behind Radical Herbs. I ran into them at a cannabis event. They told me that they appreciate listening to this podcast while tending to their fields of beautiful, organic, outdoor, regenerative cannabis. And they gave me a little gift which I am about to light up. I'm digging into their LA Kush Cake. It smells incredible, it smokes even better, and best of all, they've invited me to come up and visit their biodynamic farm where they're growing all kinds of vegetables and food, where they're raising their family, and where I am quite certain the cannabis vibe is very, very right. I hope to make that journey soon and maybe even bring you all with us. But for now, as we dig into the life story of one Randy Lanier, you, dear listener, may not be ready to burn. And that is more than understandable and also easily remedied. All you need to do is hit pause. And use that time to roll one up or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to indabulate a dab or to rub topicals all over yourself or to eat some edibles, whatever it takes to get you where you wanna be. Because, as always, when you are ready, we'll be ready for another great Great moment. moment. In weed history, Randy Lanier, we are. Honored to have you as a guest on Great Moments in Weed History. I've uh, just read your book, and I gotta say, there are multiple great moments in weed history throughout this story. There's also some really difficult moments in your life and for your family. We are uh, very, very happy that you are out and living your best life now. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. And the struggles and the hardship that you just mentioned is that's part of all of our journeys and it's where we gain our wisdom from. So, you know, I'm blessed to have the freedom. Uh, it, it took me 27 years to get to where I'm at. Life is good.
0: Right on. Well, why don't we go back to the very, very beginning of your journey with? cannabis because i know that the cannabis journey started even earlier than your adventures as a race car driver
1: i started burning weed at 14 1968 enjoyed it loved it and uh, it just took off from there started finding ways to sell it so i could smoke And it just kept continuing to grow till I was importing it and smuggling it on a large scale.
0: And we're talking, I think, about Florida in the late 1960s. How did that all come together for you?
1: In the 60s, I wasn't growing it. I was just getting Mexican bricks from Mexico, Jamaican collie buds from Jamaica. Just basically the weed that other people was bringing into Florida. That's what I was smoking. And we have some uh,
0: younger listeners to this podcast. Can you tell them what uh, uh, brick weed means?
1: So back in the 60s and early 70s, they were compressing the mostly commercial grade weed from Mexico. And it was shaped like a brick. And it had often a lot of seeds, a lot of sticks, a lot of stems. And it wasn't the best quality of weed. But they also they was growing some good weed. I've got to tell you, they was growing some very good weed occasionally uh, from Oaxaca and and, um, Acapulco gold and so forth. But the Mexican bricks were one of the major suppliers in the United States in the 60s and 70s. And as the transformation started occurring, other countries from Colombia, Jamaica first, Started growing some really good weed and the Colombians figured out how to take out all the stems and the sticks and bring in the, just the buds, the tops of the weed. So they kind of changed the whole outlook on premium quality of weed. And was this uh,
0: just a way to make money for you or did you feel a real connection to weed?
1: No, look, back in the 60s and 70s, I'd smoke weed all day long with bongs. I'd make my own bongs pipes. I'd go down and here in Florida, you got bamboo growing in a lot of places. And so we'd make our own bong pipes. And I'd sit and smoke bong pipes all day long. And I started selling it so I could smoke it freely. I, I wasn't growing it at the time. Uh, I went on an adventure to grow it later, but that's another topic. And
0: we, we have this sort of cultural idea, especially back uh, back that far in the 60s and 70s, that it was all hippies and jazz musicians smoking weed. But your early clientele were actually uh, blue-collar workers, right?
1: I got a job as a construction guy doing carpenter work when I was about 15 years old. and The construction because, workers, because I had long hair, uh, they thought I would have a connection to marijuana, and I did, and they would always ask me, hey, can you get me some grass? And I could, so it kind of expanded, so my clientele started becoming a lot of construction workers.
0: Right on. And now, let's bring the uh, race car driving side of this story in. When 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 did that first become a passion of yours?
1: In the, in the late 70s, as a hobby. I, I bought an old 356 Porsche, a 1957 Porsche, and turned it into a race car and started hitting the my local tracks here in Florida, which was West Palm Beach, Daytona, and Sebring, Florida. I was successful at it. I won the Southeastern Regional Championship in 1980. And with that, in 1982, I got my first uh, good ride with a Ferrari team at Daytona. And they asked me to go to Le Mans in France. So I went to France, raced for them in 1982, came back from France after the car ended up running out of fuel with a French driver uh, on the back straight in Bazan away, which we, we DNF'd in, did not finish, and came back and started getting rides with other other teams and was successful, was on the podium a few times, but a lot of uh, DNFs, a lot of did not finishes because the team owners just didn't have the financial wherewithal to have all the, the pods and stuff that's needed to run a, a top flight team
0: i think i see where these uh worlds are going to intersect because yeah you've got these big dreams uh to go as fast as you can as a race car driver and compete at the forgive me highest levels but that requires a, a bankroll and meanwhile let's check back in on your cannabis operations you've you've been sort of getting your own supply here and there from Mexico from other places selling it to these construction workers and friends but i i know from reading your book that it definitely uh, grows from there, so so track that for us.
1: As I started having better, higher ambitions for racing, and it 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 takes an exuberant amount of funding to get to the levels of the factory, Porsche factory, the Jaguar factory, the Ford factory. They spend millions of dollars uh, in competing and and doing a lot of R and D, a lot of research and development. And so I figured a way out to. At 19, when I was 19 years old, I started, I bought a boat and I brought my first load of weed from the Bahamas in, uh, 700 pounds of weed, and did quite good with that. I got a percentage of the weed that I brought in and I got to sell it. I took that money and bought some other boats and continued my smuggling operation. And by 1984, I had had enough money to get away from the club racing and go into the professional racing. And I developed my own racing team to compete against the factories, such as the Porsche factory and the Ford factory and, and raced in the elite series called GTP, Grand Touring Prototypes. They're the most fastest exotic sports cars on the planet. And, Uh, Through the importation and smuggling of the weed that I was bringing in, I was able to compete with the factories.
0: Wow. Yeah. Reading your book, this this whole story, it's uh, it's an amazing tale of that specific era of weed smuggling, Um, you know, really before homegrown in the United States was supplying uh, most people, all of this cannabis is being smuggled in by uh, people like yourself. And for a gearhead, on the one hand, you know, we see you – Getting into faster and more uh, expensive and and more elite cars to drive. While on the smuggling side, maybe you can d- describe the the first boat from that first smuggling run. Uh, how much you were able to bring and the evolution of that. How the how the boats and the loads uh, just kept getting bigger and and more complex.
1: Around 1973, I bought a 27-foot Magnum Sport. It had like a cuddy cabin. Maximum I could hold was about 800 pounds of weed. But I didn't buy it to smuggle. I bought it to have fun and race. And I got offered an opportunity to go to the Bahamas and bring a load of weed in. So I I took the opportunity. Uh, I saw an opportunity there that I could get some weed and make an endeavor to to financially come up in the world a little bit and have weed to smoke. My very first load was the first time going to the Bahamas and crossing the Gulf Stream. And I picked up 700 pounds of weed and brought it into a friend's house on a canal. The first load was easy, but not all of them are easy. A lot of hardships come about sometimes. I happen to have really easy, flat seas. I met a mothership in the Bahamas. The seas were nice and flat that evening when I... uh, unloaded from the mothership to my ship, my boat. So that particular load, I thought, well, this is easy. But little did I know that I, that time was unusual. Uh, sometimes I wonder if it would have been a lot harder, would have continued.
0: And what would you say of all the smuggling runs, which one got the hairiest for you?
1: Well, there was quite a few of them. I've, ha- I've had to sink a boat before because the Coast Guard, the Bahamian Coast Guard came upon us. And the captain decided to sink the boat and there had been shootouts with the Bahamian police on a boat uh, while they was waiting on me to come and unload. And the Harrius was maybe sinking of a vessel with a lot of people on, a lot of a lot, but several crew members on board the vessel. And we, we got as much weed off the boat as we could. And there was another time that we ran into a tropical depression and I got kind of had to, anchor behind a deserted uh, island that had a lighthouse on it and the Coast Guard came across us the next day and it was raining and storming we couldn't get inside the boat because the boat was full of weed so we was out in the cockpit and the helicopter comes by and hovers above us and so I pulled anchor and and run to Bimini I thought I better unload the weed there at Bimini because they might come and want us to clear customs so that was a a hurry night because we had to unload the weed at night, walking it down the docks with other ships and sailboats um, with the battened down hatches all inside because of the storm. So I mean, it's each each load has its own pearls.
0: And I think the, the through line of, of all these things, the smuggling, the race car driving, and sort of the lifestyle around both of them is... Not just uh, a willingness to assume risks, but some some love of it. There, the, you, you must have some love of pushing limits, of potential danger, of trying to literally outrun, uh, whether it's the competition on the racetrack or the police. What part of yourself is attracted to all of this?
1: The adrenaline was appealing. When you plan out operations... And you bring them to successful endings. Pretty interesting, all the adrenaline when you are uh, smuggling or racing. They kind of similar in the fact that um, you have to really focus on what you're doing and pay attention, <laughs> or else you get bit. And what was
0: the lifestyle around this? You know, this is a romantic era uh, in 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 weed history of the smuggling era, and and even to some extent the pre cartel smuggling era when uh, weed was the primary import crop it was mainly people like yourself who were independent operators or you know there was certainly uh, a rogues gallery of people who knew each other but it wasn't a big organized cartel-like entity sort of the good times the first half of the smuggling movie uh what 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 from your perspective outside of you know just say the money and the weed what was the lifestyle like that that attracted you to it and made you uh keep keep going
1: the the lifestyle that i my personally started experiencing was a lifestyle of affluence uh, from lear jets to yachts lots of times and weeks at monte carlo and saint tope on the south of france and traveling through Europe. I I liked the lifestyle, but the racing was the main thing that I I really aspired to be accomplished in was the racing. The smuggling of the weed was uh, an avenue that paved the way for me to be successful with racing.
0: For people such as myself who aren't steeped in the world of car racing, what I learned through your book and found so fascinating is not just that you were able to be successful in racing, but that you really broke through as an independent driver in a way that shook up the entire system of uh, speed racing. So, can you explain to people, um, you know, the bigger forces that you were taking on, and 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 why you needed such big influxes of money to do that
1: in in gtp grand touring prototypes in the 80s which are the most exotic fastest sports cars on the planet you have the factories that are the main research and development of the cars and the technology so you have Porsche, you have ford you have jaguar you have ferrari teams and they have unlimited funding So they can go and rent tracks and and, and do their research and development and design everything from brakes to Kevlar, materials that come about through technology, through their research and development at the racetrack. So when I started smuggling weed and went from club racing to professional racing, I found out that. I needed a budget that could match the factories, and I found a way through smuggling that could do the research and development. I started developing racing gear from cooling suits uh, back in the early 80s before they was even developed. Uh, We was doing research and researching with Kevlar material before it became a prominent thing for getting the lighter weight. On the car, because, of course, the lighter weight that you have, the faster you can go. The money that we was making from the smuggling helped us uh, compete with the factories in a, in a big way.
0: And uh, it does not seem like you were the only person to take this route. In fact, the uh, organizing body of some of these races uh, had a specific nickname based on how many drivers were also smugglers.
1: So I raced in a series called IMSA, I-M-S-A. And it got the nickname as International Marijuana Smuggling Association because not only was it I that was smuggling, but there were several other large teams that found the same way I did. To compete against the factories, they needed big money. And we found the money in the smuggling of the weed. The demand for for this weed plant is amazing. It's sad that it's been 50 years of propaganda on this plant But this plant is a plant that heals in so many ways. And that's why the demand will always be there. The black market will always be there. And um, we found ways to sustain our racing career and, and compete against the big boys. In 1986, I raced at Indianapolis 500. I was rookie of the year. And two years prior to that, 1984, and competing against the factories, I won the International Motor Sanctioning Association uh, (GTP) Grand Touring Prototype, which is the elite of the sports cars. I won the uh, international championship that year, competing against the factories.
0: So this brings up a, a, a you know another turn in the story, which is as your notoriety as a driver. Uh, gets to this very high profile. You're winning races, you're rookie of the year, you're uh, a known entity. and all these different disciplines of race car driving, you've come to to, to the racing establishment's mind out of nowhere. Uh, they have to look at all of these expensive cars and teams and research that you have and uh, wonder where you're getting the money. How did you manage this double life for as long as you did?
1: Well, it was a short-lived career, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so my racing career spanned from the early 80s to 1987. I think a lot of the officials in the sanctioning association probably questioned where were all this money coming from because it takes millions of dollars to sustain a, a racing per year
0: do you think to some extent they may have turned a blind eye to it It's it was certainly benefiting uh, them
1: oh yeah definitely they probably had questions but they didn't ask them <laughs>
0: and speaking of the smuggling movies uh in your book it, it talks about you bringing in some of the the biggest loads of cannabis that have ever been smuggled into this country and, you know, making quite a lot of money for yourself and your partners and everyone sort of watching the movie at that point has the same question.
1: Why wouldn't you stop? (laughs) Well, I wanted to continue racing. And when you get into... Making tens of millions of dollars, you can get caught up in the greed. and But yet the racing was still at my in my heart. It was what I wanted to do. I wanted to compete. I wanted to win championships. I wanted to win races. I wanted to win the Indy 500. And that takes tens of millions of dollars. And so I continued to smuggle until the wheels. I, I, I rode until the wheels fell off.
0: What did you consider the finest weed to smoke uh, from, from anywhere in the world?
1: The weed that I, I, I imported and smuggled was top flight Colombian tops. I didn't bring in no commercial weed. I brought in all premium tops of the flower, Punta Roja. I usually would put in about forty to 50,000 pounds of Santa Marta gold. And, but the premium weed that I was smoking at the time, was usually Thai weed from Thailand, Thai sticks. Uh, I like to smoke some uh, Hawaiian weed. The Kona buds was good, but the Thai sticks I really like, and they had some good weed from Belize. Um, that was. These are all seedless weeds that I I like to smoke back in the eighties.
0: Right on, and I think you know you you're on with us here at Great Moments in Weed History. You know how we feel about weed. I know other people might see you know you're breaking the law in a different context but to us and the cannabis people you know a couple of things from the book is one the money that was able to flow into these cultivation communities in Colombia did a lot to lift the people there out of out of poverty and also what we now know about the medicinal properties of cannabis those pounds and pounds and pounds of weed all reached people, all brought them uh, medicine, brought them a certain consciousness. So I think that you must, on some level, feel good about being a part of that, although you know it does uh, lead to trouble.
1: The propaganda that this plant has been vilified for 50 years is completely false. And this plant's a plant that heals, not just the people, but it heals the planet in so many ways. Culturally, by importing the large weed loads that I brought in, helped thousands and thousands of families in in Colombia and here in the United States. So we continued, the demand was there. It was an appetite that would continue to grow, and you see how it is growing now legally. 37 states now it's legal in one form or another, whether it's adult use or medical. And around the world globally, countries are starting to realize that hey, this this plant has so many benefits in so many ways. So it's time for this the world to really globally come together and understand that this plant is a plant that heals, it put it's on this planet for many purposes. And I'm glad to see that the United States is finally legalizing it. And um, eventually, there'll be no more cannabis prisoners, which is a sad part that I still deal with through a nonprofit organization called FreedomGrow.org.
0: When was your first inkling that... Somebody was coming after you from the law enforcement side. And where were you at in your racing career at that moment?
1: In 1986, I got informed that someone had been arrested. And he was a distributor for one of my distributors. I was preparing to go to Indianapolis 500. And I had a load coming in. And that's when my I first was aware that I was being watched and the FBI was aware of who I was and they were expecting me to bring a load into New Orleans.
0: And you had some chance to perhaps pull up stakes, but you went through with it, right?
1: Yes, I I had a very large load, 170,000 pounds coming in to New Orleans, and I got warned that the FBI was aware of my load, so I decided to change the the unloading facility from New Orleans to California. I changed the route and turned the boat around and ran it through the Panama Canal up to the west coast of San Francisco. Got the load in and. um, was my last
0: load you know there's a concept in racing in essence that you have to accelerate through the turn and this reminds me of the smuggling equivalent of that and i think one of the you know more poignant moments in the book is when you are at indy racing in certainly the most prestigious race in the united states and for the first time you've talked about how uh, you know, once you are driving the car, the world recedes, and the tremendous focus required uh, to compete at that level and the danger of it. And here you are at the peak moment of it, and finally, the world does intrude on you while you are in the cockpit driving.
1: When you get in a race car, where we put our attention. Energy follows, and to be really good in racing, you develop a skill to focus. The longer you can hold your concentration, the better laps that you will do. You you'll hit your marks better. I was being followed by the FBI. The DEA was building a case on me in Miami, separate from the FBI. And at Indianapolis, the last ten laps, there was a, a crash. And we have a yellow flag. Instead of focusing on what's in front of me, I, I started thinking, will I be able to race here again? This might be my last race. And it took my focus off of the racing and made me realize that I did all this for the racing. And yet, here it is. This will probably be my last race because I will very well may likely be going to prison.
0: Wow. and we you know we talked some about this this propaganda and the stereotypes around cannabis and cannabis consumers and yet you know your whole experience flies in the face of this you know the idea that you're going to be spaced out if you smoke weed well that doesn't really track with what it takes to race uh competitively in the indie 500 the idea that you're going to be lazy and unmotivated well anybody who reads the book or just thinks about what must be involved in organizing and executing one of these uh massive smuggling runs uh you know it is quite the opposite of being spaced out or a motivated it is you know run much like a military operation. And so I wonder if as society has finally started to catch up, if you feel any sort of sense of vindication or if you feel that people uh, look at your story differently now than at that time when you were being hounded by the government and, and you know in, in fear of your freedom.
1: What, what's amazing is we learn through education. And the world is learning through being educated that this plant, and I'll keep repeating it, this plant is a plant that I just truly respect and love. And it's an amazing thing to see it evolving, that the understanding that this plant is a plant that's that's good for us. You know, people shouldn't be incarcerated for this plant. I mean, that's bizarre. You're gonna lock someone up for a flower? It's a flower that heals from children having seizures to people with cancer to people with depression, anxiety, you name it, you find the right strain, it will help you.
0: And so at a certain point, you do make your attempt to evade the authorities.
1: When I found out that I was being investigated by the FBI, I sent lawyers to Illinois to connect with the fbi to try to negotiate the fbi wanted full cooperation i wasn't into cooperating i couldn't work out in a, a plea agreement without cooperation so i fled the country
0: and just uh, by cooperation you mean have you testify against people you'd worked with or your friends
1: yes yes i wasn't i'm from old school uh, you're not supposed to tell on your brothers and sisters and I wasn't in the frame of mind to give up others and put them through incarceration and, and stuff. I, I just wasn't into being a rat a witness. So I fled the country and went to Europe and was there for close to nine months. From Switzerland, I flew to an island called Antigua where I had a, a house and a, and a yacht. And I got captured on my yacht down in Antigua.
0: And from there, it was, um, you know, to trial and, and how, how long were you incarcerated?
1: They found no weed in my case. I have what's called a dry case. They was informed that I smuggled marijuana, but the marijuana got sm- smoked and sold. Every bit of it got smoked. None of it ever got captured, arrested or sold to undercover agents. Completely dry case. They have never found one bud. So I took my case to trial and I received the natural death sentence. Life with no parole. It took me 27 years to overcome it. And I was released. I went in, I got captured in 1987 and came out in 2014.
0: Fuck. And you know, just for for listeners who may not know, at at, at the time that you began smuggling the common sentence for Similar crimes could be two or three years, oh, yeah. even potentially a suspended sentence. Um, yeah. So this was the beginning of the modern war on drugs. And this was the Reagan era approach to the war on drugs. And one thing that I think we always point out on these on this program is by coming down so hard on nonviolent, Cannabis smugglers such as yourself, all the war on drugs did was create this lucrative market and this very violent market in the smuggling of cocaine. And, you know, I'm, I'm, on behalf of everybody listening to this show, you know, we're very sorry that, that you lost so much of your freedom to it. I, I don't want to bring you through that experience, again, in a traumatic way. But I do tend to ask, you know, what you may have learned from that experience or what you may have to share with other people based on that experience that could be of some value.
1: So I, I learned a lot from 27 years in maximum security prisons. My last nine years, I was a suicide volunteer. I sat with men that tried to take their lives, men that had given up hope. It really taught me a valuable lesson in speaking with these men that the highest form of knowledge on the planet is empathy. It's amazing how our struggles and our hardships will give us wisdom. I came out of prison, a completely different perspective that I have now. And we're all here for many purposes. Many purposes. And our purposes change throughout our life. So if you don't know what your purpose is, all you have to do is ask yourself one question. What breaks your heart? Currently, what breaks my heart is having people incarcerated for cannabis. So that's why I help with cannabis prisoners and their families. We have 178 cannabis prisoners that are nonviolent registered with a nonprofit that I'm a vice president of called freedomgrow.org. We're all volunteers. None of us take a salary. We do it on our own time. And we have multitude of programs. We have holiday gifting. Every holiday, we gift the family, the children of the cannabis prisoners. For example, for Easter, we had 178 cannabis prisoners. They have 126 children. So we made up 126 Easter baskets with little water bottles that said, you are strong, you are brave, and you are smart. We put Rubik's cubes in them. We put activity books. We put little chocolate bunnies and Easter beans with a $25 gift card to each child. For Christmas, we, sent, we had a 205 cannabis prisoners. We sent 205 $100 money order gift cards from Walmart to the family so they could take their family shopping. This is what we do at freedomgrow.org. We have blogs out for prisoners. If you're interested in helping, go to freedomgrow.org. You can read about prisoners and what their daily life is, what they're experiencing. These are our brothers and sisters that are incarcerated in a 10 by 11 foot cell or 7 by 10 foot cell. And a lot of them have been in there for 20 and 30 years for a plant, for a flower. That breaks my heart.
0: Might as well, and thank you for for doing that work. And you know, I think one of the most beautiful parts in the book is is really in the end to see that you've been able to rebuild a life for yourself with your family, and um, even got back out on the racetrack a, a bit. Can you can you tell us about that?
1: So I was instructing for. Uh, um a group here in Florida. Um, I'm a high-performance driving instructor at Daytona, Sebring, and Homestead Speedway. That's been amazing. But for five years, when I got out of prison, I worked in a substance abuse treatment center. I became a behavioral health technician, working with a lot of Afghanistan veterans that have gotten caught up coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and gotten caught up in doing substance abuse such as opium and uh, alcohol. It's amazing because th- I see these substance abuse treatment centers would rather give them subutex and Suboxins instead of a natural herb, such as CBD cannabis or Kratom for five years. I was working in substance abuse at the same time while being a high performance driving instructor, but this is how ironic this is with this plant, this war on drugs in March March 28th, to be exact, the state of New Jersey awarded me a cultivation license, a social equity cultivation license. So now I'm in New Jersey preparing a facility to cultivate 75,000 square feet of canopy. It's amazing. So now, as soon as I get up and running, we'll have the wherewithal to help all of these cannabis prisoners that are currently in, in, incarcerated and hopefully we can do legislation can help have the funding to help get all these people out and show that this plant is a plant that heals.
0: Wow. That's amazing. I'm a, I'm i I'm from New Jersey. So welcome to the garden state and it's an amazing project. And I I assume that you are, are free and clear to get high on your own supply at this point you you have. Are you, are you able?
1: I smoke weed every day, (laughs) every day. I've been smoking for 53 years. Even in prison, uh, doesn't matter if you even in the hole, you can smoke weed if you got the means and the understanding of how to get it in. So uh, the most most tightest security place in the world, most maximum security prisons, there's weed there to be smoked uh, daily.
0: Wow. And it just it just shows what a farce and a tragic one this whole war has been. Um, I think uh, maybe the last question is compare what, you know, what you're finding to your liking among the cannabis on the market now uh, to the uh, Punta Roja you were, you were, you were involved in, in importing in the eighties.
1: So I, I, what I like now is you, you you can, get a better understanding of what you like and locate the type of strains that you like with the terpenes that you your body likes each of us are a little different makeup so some of us like might like different terpenes than others and that is amazing now that you have such a selection of so many strains that you can really really locate and develop a strain that which I will be this is crazy I've just licensing a, a strain, a brand now, which I'll be unveiling in MJ Biz in November, called Blue Thunder, and um, coming out with some strains that's going to be awesome. And yeah, I can't wait to get into the New Jersey market and really work with some genetics and come up with some great strains.
0: Uh, well, I wish you. All the best fortune going forward with that. I will. Uh, I visit New Jersey to see my family a couple of times a year, so I will be uh, looking right forward on. to enjoying some blue thunder with my sister. And uh, maybe one more time, if you can just tell us, remind us the name of the organization that you're working with, and if people want to check it out.
1: We have a, a nonprofit organization. We're an all volunteer organization. And it's called freedomgrow.org. If you want to help us, we do gifting, we do pen pals, we do all kinds of uh, holiday gifting. We have a program called the WISP program. And if it's your, if you're a cannabis prisoner and you're nonviolent, and if it's your birthday, if it's your mother's birthday, your father's, your grandchildren, somebody's of your family birthday, you tell us what we want and we make them wishes come true. And that's what we do at FreedomGrow.org. We have uh, a saying, we bring light to a dark cell.
0: True that.
1: That's what we're about, Dave.
0: Well, Randy, thank you so much for bringing so much wonderful cannabis into this country (laughs) and this world. Thank you for uh, writing an excellent book, and I think an important one, and one that I kind of think is going to be a major motion picture someday.
1: Oh, Um, oh! I just David. Now that you mentioned that, I sold the uh, the book. Book got sold for a full feature film about two months ago.
0: Oh, congratulations! Is there anything you could tell us about that, or?
1: Well, I can tell you that it's um, there's been a screenplay writer um, just recently come on board, so it's full tilt. It's in the process of being developed right now. Survival of the
0: fastest. Don't wait for that. Go get a copy of the book. It's a tremendous read. If you love weed, and especially if you love auto racing, um, and just at the heart of it is this very lovely human person that we've had the honor of talking with today. Randy, thank you so much for being on Great Moments in Weed History. And I hope that you and I will have an opportunity to meet sometime soon and uh, have some of that blue thunder together in New Jersey. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. We'll see you next week with another episode. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You could put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, aka Bean.